Welcome back to the FKT Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Anderson. Today, we're catching up with Jack Kenzel. Jack has a plethora of FKTs to his name, including three major ones set in 2022. Today, we're talking about his experience with those, as well as his journey to mountain athlete. So Jack, I also spent the summer in the UK, and I am surprised we didn't cross paths out there. I'm kind of curious about this whole like expedition, you went to the UK, you lived in a van, and you set two extremely competitive FKTs while you're there, the Bob Graham and the Tranter. Did you go there with the intention of setting those two specific FKTs? Or were you just there to see what happened? So the UK has three kind of national rounds kind of in each little country within Great Britain. So the Ramsey is up in Scotland, and Finley Wild had set the Ramsey record I believe in 2021. And so he had done it unsupported. So I figured that that was a good, the Ramsey of the three appealed to me the most because it was the highest. I felt it was most mountainous and Finley had done it unsupported. So I wouldn't need to get any local support. There wasn't really a ton of thought into the future. I knew like someday I would like to go for the Bob, but I just felt that anything Killian had would be far beyond what I was capable of. So I was actually originally planning on going out to Colorado and trying to race the hard rock course, going to the race and then trying to race the course afterwards. And I was worried about the smoke. And so like, unfortunate enough, my dad used to be a pilot for Delta, so I can fly standby for pretty cheap. I was about to drive to Colorado and then I was like, oh, you know what? I, maybe I should just go to the UK instead. So I went over with the attention of the Ramsey and then I bought the van and the van had, I had to buy minimum three months of insurance, which is about 200 bucks a month. So I was stuck there for three months because I didn't want to waste waste my insurance payment so right um i figured i would do something after the ramsey but like i i ended up being the tranter but really i didn't really put a lot of a lot of thought into it i think i like plan my life in like 30 seconds increments right before it happens so no i wasn't really thinking that far in advance right right yeah i mean i plan my life maybe like three months in advance but like I, the same type of thing like i definitely get the not planning too super far out so i mean you were stuck there for three months and obviously you spent a lot of time on these routes that you set FKTs on. Were there any other areas you explored that you saw routes that you want to maybe you wanted to try and you didn't or you want to go back for? Yeah. So so the two that that kind of strike me as appealing that are over there, are, there's an island off kind of like northwestern Scotland, the uh, Isle of Skye. And uh, there's a very famous ridge traverse there, the Coolin Ridge Traverse, which is a record that Finley also has. And that I went and did parts of it. I, I'm way too bad on steep rock and with exposure to like to have practiced the full route. But I just like out and back to some of the peaks that were on it. It's beautiful. It's kind of chossy, but the rock is like really, really grippy. And that route goes like it's like fifth class. So a little bit beyond me right now. And then the other one is down in lakes. There is the Bob Graham round and there's also the 24 hour peak record. And so essentially it's the record for summiting the most peaks in the Lake District in 24 hours, which Kim Collison currently has, I think it's 78 peaks that he has. And it works out to about 93 miles and 40,000 feet of climbing in 24 hours. Wow, that's crazy. I also went to Sky this summer and it was stunning. Like I didn't actually do any of the cooling just because we didn't have great weather while we were there, but they look amazing. I feel like I need to go back just to do those. That's a tricky part about, about a lot of stuff up there. And especially like Sky is just the weather is just it's just kind of horrendous. And that just, you know, kind of drives me crazy. Yeah, especially with it being technical. 
we actually saw the Kulin, like it came out, like we could see it and we were just like, well, maybe we should go over there. But then 20 minutes later is like completely socked in. And I'm like, all right, maybe we shouldn't go over there. I feel like it'd just be really hard to get that window unless you're just like sitting there waiting for it. Yeah, I, I think that's what's needed. And there's like very little cell phone coverage there. So I, I would go personally go crazy. Right. But. Yeah. And so speaking of the weather limitations and things like that. So the Tranter that you went out and you did, I mean, this is a pretty big, high mountainous region. I mean, you go over the high point of Scotland. And I know you said in your trip report that it was kind of a last minute, like, I'm going to go run this now. Were you just sitting there waiting for the weather window? How did it play out with that? Yeah, so I did the the White Mountains 100 up in New Hampshire, and I'd, I'd done a massive like one month taper for that. And so for the Tranter, I was going to try a shorter taper. I'd scouted the route. I got over to the UK at the beginning of July, and I kind of scouted it the first three weeks of July, and I was feeling pretty confident. And then I went for a run with Finley up on the bend and we were just talking and I was like, I, I, I guess I'm going to do it soon. I, I hadn't really gave it a ton of thought. And I was like, I was like thinking about my spring training. I was like, okay, maybe next Thursday I'll do it. And I ended up doing it next the following Thursday. I mean, there was, there was a ton of thought going in, went into the, the prep and everything, but really the weather is so unpredictable there. Like I knew it was, I was going to do it like those months. And once I felt confident on the route, it was just, you know, taper for a week or so, and then just pick a, a day with decent weather. So no, it wasn't, uh, I, I didn't really pick that date ahead of time or anything. No, it was kind right. of that more 30 seconds in advance. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I found it interesting, like your original intent, it seems was to do the Ramsey and then you went out and you scouted it and you settled on the Tranter, which I think is a little bit lesser done or, or lesser known, at least on the FKT site, like it's kind of nested under the Ramsey and missed a lot of times. So I was kind of curious if you could talk a little bit about your decision-making process for deciding which of those two very similar rounds to attempt. Yeah. So it was a little bit interesting because, so I scouted all of the Ramsey and so the Tranter and the Ramsey are these were 24 hour attempts to like some of the most peaks in 24 hours, essentially, that was done up in, in Scotland back in the mid 20th century, essentially. And uh, so the first attempt was or one of the successful attempts that got a lot of peaks was Philip Tranter's route in the 1960s. And that went over or 18 or 19, 3000 foot or higher mountains. And then I think about 15, 20 years later, Charlie Ramsey went and he ran his round, which added an additional four or five peaks to it. So I think because the Ramsey is close in difficulty to the Bob Graham and to the Patty Buckley, and the three of these have become very popular 24-hour challenges for people to do. Whereas the Tranter, I think most people would look at that as like a little bit too easy to really be kind of like a, a worthy objective for a lot of the expiring fell runners in the UK. So the Tranter is kind of kind of gets less attention. Tons of people run it. It's far more aesthetic than the Ramsey. Three of the peaks of the Ramsey tax on just don't have any trail up and down them. It's just like steep moss and grass, which is fun to run down. But going up, it's like every time you step, you know, you're losing, I don't even know, 50, 60 percent of your energy just into the moss and the bog. And it's just I found it very unpleasant. My kind of thought was like Finley holds both these records, holds the Tranter and the Ramsey record. They're equally stout. If anything, the Tranter is is the more stout of the two records. The only reason for me to do the Ramsey is because it was more famous. There was more of that name recognition. I mean, that's really, really the only reasons. And I, I mean, I did kind of think about it for a while and I settled on the Tranter just because I liked the route much better. And I wasn't confident in that until about a week or two after I did the Tranter. And it was just talking to a lot of runners. And I saw like the respect that the Tranter had 
and I saw like the history of racing that it had that I, I wasn't really aware of. So no, I am I am pleased with my decision. But essentially, yeah, it was just because I, I enjoyed running on the Tranter more than the Ramsey. So yeah, I agree. I mean, the Tranter is very aesthetic and. I mean, when we got to stop Bond, we like looked over at the stuff that makes it the Ramsey and we were like, yeah, no, we don't want to do that. Although we did get lured down because there was the promise of a trail down there, which there is no, I mean, you went down there scouting, you know, there is no trail down there. The bog of doom, as we called it, it took us like all day to get through there. It's terrible. But, it's so funny. Um, I had no, I had no yeah. idea you'd done these. Wow. That's cool. Uh yeah, I was out, um, my husband and I, we backpacked the transfer, yeah. like we didn't have an intent to like run it. We were out there, I think, 10 days or so before you set your FKT. Oh, no way. Um, and we went the opposite direction. So we started with Ben and went around and we were there. Uh, so we were doing that horrible section between Stop Bond and Skure, Illymore, however yep. you say that, yep. uh, down along the lake on that day that London hit 100 degrees. So it was so horrible down there. Oh, it was yeah. like wading through the bog being eaten alive by horse flies and ticks and mosquitoes and we were just like this is horrible i'm so glad we didn't add those other like five peaks or whatever and then as soon as we got up to the lake and back onto the peaks i mean that part of the tranter is amazing and i was like glad we actually persisted but yeah i definitely agree like going through that all that for those peaks is not ideal <laughs> yeah it's, it's tricky i actually came to almost enjoy that the off trail section you're kind of referring to it took me running about five times before i kind of but, I kind of came around on it, but once you kind of like learn the line, it's, it gets a little bit better, but climbing the direction I went climbing up Stowe Bon, I mean, it's just, it's horrible because yeah, like you said, it, it gets so hot. There's no wind. You're just baking in the sun. I fell in the mud, like up to my knees. Like I just jumped off this like big, I don't know what they call them. Like the big grass tufts. It was like, it was very eroded. And I just like jumped into some mud and just went into my knees and it was just like, it's just not pleasant, but at least running down that is nice because it's just steep heather and you can right. really, really run fast down it. All the off-trail downhill is fantastic, but it's the fighting through. I think, too, it's the like expectation. You know, by the fifth time, you, you had the expectation down, you know? Like, we had looked at a map and seen, oh, there's a trail and a road down here. And then there was like, this is not a trail or a road. This is a bog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, definitely expectation plays into that. So I know when I was reading your report and we just touched on it a little bit about the heat, it sounded like you had some issues with like the heat on that route. And it seems like you had issues with the heat at the Bob Graham too. Can you talk a little bit about how maybe that affected you or if it did at all? Yeah. So I think some of this is me pinning. I think years ago, I would have associated the fatigue I had on the Bob or on the transfer just with normal fatigue you'd experience during an ultramarathon, whereas now I kind of associate it more to an extent with overheating. In many contexts, this wasn't like classic overheating. This was like more me reaching some sort of physical limit going uphill and now attribute that to, to overheating to a degree. So I think it's just because what I noticed was like I would train on these routes largely regardless of the weather. And often, you know, being the UK, it's it's overcast, you know, sometimes it's drizzling or, or raining. And then when a window comes up to race, typically there's like a sustained high pressure system and some like temperatures that are above what I experienced during training. And I'm also like bigger at the time, you know, wait now, like about 180 pounds and about like 6'1", 6'2". And so like heat production in larger athletes is just like exponentially higher. So I knew mitigating the heat was going to be a big factor for me. The heat was a big issue for Finley and for Killian when they both did the Bob. 
And the other problem with these routes is they're all completely above tree line. So you're just in the sun all day. And like, honestly, I think even if it was in the 30s or 40s Fahrenheit, just standing in the sun all day, I think it's just going to roast you a little bit. So with the Tranter, I like vowed to myself that I would heat train before the Bob. And then I ended up doing the Bob earlier than I expected. And I didn't get enough time to get into the sauna. I mean, I got into the sauna. I wanted to do like two weeks of four sessions a week prior to the Bob. And I ended up doing three sessions in the week before I raced. That was the only, only sauna work I got in. So uh, yeah, I did get hot. I mean, it's helpful it being supported. I could just like drink infinite water and it was like, you know, ice water a lot of times, but uh, yeah, I, I think that was an issue. Yeah, definitely. I know that was something that surprised me out on the Tranter was how hot it was. Like I knew it was going to be hot, but it was hot. Like you, it felt hotter than it was. And also there was actually, I felt like a lack of water out there like or at least good water like there was brown nasty bog water but there was not a lot of good water out there um and i know we ended up getting dehydrated and we were definitely not pushing at the level you were yeah at one point on the transfer i uh because the other thing is i i really don't like carrying anything extra and so i was always trying to carry just enough water like enough water, I was completely satiated, but like not so much that I'd like get to a stream crossing and have extra in my bottles. And at one point I cut it too close and I just, I filled up out of like, I mean, it was a literal mud puddle. Like there were, I, I filled up initially and there were tadpoles like inside my soft flask and I just like, you know, dumped them out. And, but it was, yeah, it was, uh, actually, it was honestly mud. Uh, right. It was pretty nasty, but you know, <laughs> end up being fine. <laughs> You need one of those like life straws or whatever. They always show them like drinking out of the. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly. Um, I, I didn't want to. Yeah. I didn't want the weight. You know, too heavy. Yeah. No, I get it. I actually think that my husband scooped up some water out there that had like little worm-like things in it, and I was just like, not thinking <laughs> that. I, I will be thirsty. I I think he did dump that out, and <laughs> but I was just like, no, we're not drinking that. Not with all the sheep around. So you talked a little bit about your prep for the Bob, but I'm kind of curious. So like after you did the Tranter, which is like unsupported, it was really hot. And then you had this complete shift to like the Bob Graham where it was supported. And I, I think maybe you might have had a little bit cooler weather down there. And you mentioned you, you didn't get into the sauna quite as much as you wanted, but could you like kind of compare and contrast like maybe your training, like what you took from the Tranter and applied to the Bob and, and what you changed and what you didn't? Yeah, I mean, I'm, try I'm trying to remember. I, I don't think there were a ton of the biggest takeaway from the Tranter was I learned that I, I needed to be better heat trained. And the other thing was like, a lot of times I have a lot of stress and, and nerves while tapering for these things. And the, the Tranter, like I slept remarkably poorly in the couple nights prior, like almost worse than I have in the past. Like, I mean, probably three or four hours the night before, maybe five hours, a couple nights before that. And I usually try to get, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours a night. And so that's like, really mentally stressful for me. And it's almost like I wake up race morning and it's like, I'm already fatigued from that poor sleep and just thinking about it and everything. And I've experienced that in the past, but the Tranter was the first time I really actually felt like, Hey, this, this didn't really affect me at all. So going into the Bob, I just tried not to sweat that as much. I don't think it helped with the stress levels. I was like, Oh, you know, if it's not going to bother me, then maybe I'll be less stressed. It didn't really happen. But the big thing on the Bob I learned was like, if I have access to like unlimited water, then I just drink like a ridiculous amount. I'm, I wish I could quantify it, but I, I have no idea what it is. Like my pacers just had a ton of trouble carrying enough water for me. So it's almost like in retrospect, like maybe it would have been worth on the Tranter. Like I only carried a liter and sometimes I only would fill up a half a liter. 
like maybe it would have been worth in the transfer, like doing a liter and a half the whole entire time and just eating that weight just to have that extra water. The transfer was, was like instrumental to like me doing well on the bob because a lot of the the physical mechanics of running on the trancher and the bob are exactly the same. It's like super steep, grassy downhills with occasional really rocky sections. There was the same ideas of like optimizing my lines and selecting the best routes. In a lot of places, there's no trods, there's no trails. You just have to go off like a, a GPX file and just kind of navigate off of that. Or, you know, obviously navigate by opening your eyes and like looking at what's in front of you, which, uh, I don't do a lot of, I just felt much better. Like if I had gone straight over and done the Bob, it would have been way more stressful. It would have been way harder. And having like a data point against Killian was huge because Finley had done the Bob the year previous and ran seven minutes slower than Killian. And so that was like my only source of confidence going against Killian mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like the mental aspect? Killian has these incredibly stout records all over the place and you're out there pursuing his FKT on the Bob. And I know you were very close in time to him almost throughout the whole thing. So what was going through your mind? Like, were you thinking about that? Were you thinking about his time? Were you thinking about him? Or were you just focused on what's in front of your feet, doing the best you can, moving forward? Like, I'm kind of curious, like how much of a race was going on in your head? Yeah, like I remember I remember <laughs> when we got to the stomach of uh, Clothhead, which is the first peak on the second leg, I said to my pacers, I was like this effing, you know, Spanish, Spanish guy is, is in my head like all day today. Like I can't, I can't escape him because like my whole life I've like compared myself to Killian. Like I would like run in Virginia and I'd like look at like the run I did, like some FKT in Virginia and then like look at like his like Zagama time or something or his marathon in Mount Blanc and like try to compare like the gaps and the technicality and the grades and everything. So I'd always wondered. And the other thing on the trancher, like I paid a lot of attention to Finley splits and I ran almost all of Finley splits before I did it. And on the Bob, I decided I wasn't going to do that. So I almost didn't even look at their splits until race day because I felt like I had my data point against Killian, which was Finley's time. And I could go out and stress out over these splits, but it really wasn't going to bring me any confidence. So that day, my plan basically was to run the Bob is divided into five legs. It was to run leg one, eight minutes slower than Killian and then basically not stop for the rest of the day. And Killian had 14 minutes of stoppage between aid stations and kind of like a, a blow up towards the end of leg four. So if I just matched his splits for the rest of the day, I would have beat him by six minutes. That was my strategy. But when, so when we started uh, leg two, we had yet to match a single one of his splits so far, you know, by plan. And so at this point, I'm trying to actually keep up with him. And we come out of the aid station and we get to the top of the first peak on Lake two. And we like lost like two minutes on him. And I was just frustrated to be completely honest. I was like, this is like, this is like fucking over right now. And like, I had three pacers. And so like two of my pacers skipped the next two peaks. And I took one pacer and I was like, I don't care what it takes. Like we are beating Killian on these like next two splits. And over the course, like next 25 minutes, we put like three minutes on Killian. And it like, it didn't feel like unsustainable. And then... I told my pacers, I was like, okay, like, let's not look at the paces for a little bit. Like I kind of get a feel for like how fast he's going now. And, and then I remember very clearly, like we got to the summit of Rays, and I asked my pacer, I was like, how far up are we? And like, we had gained like another minute. I mean, we're still two minutes behind Killian, but we had gained, like we were, we had gained another minute or two. I guess we were four minutes behind Killian. And I just like, I was like so excited. Like, I think in that moment I realized 
as long as I don't trip and fall, then like I'm I'm going to get this record. Because like, I mean, I could feel the pace we were going at. I was like, okay, I'm just like, I can't, I'm not going to blow up. I know how Killian kind of ran this. So yeah, that moment on Rays with those pacers was just like, that was just incredible. And it was kind of funny because like, as like the person running it, like you get a full view of the entire day, but these pacers just experience like one slice of it. And so I always think of like, you know, that, that like leg two was like the most dramatic ups and downs and was like, a, you know, it was just like a roller coaster. It was just like absolutely crazy. And it's just kind of funny that to the extent they care, like the pacers who are on that, like their only experience of the entire day was just like absolute chaos. Whereas like leg three, like three just went really smoothly. Like four, like I had a really rough patch, but it was like we were, we were ahead and like I felt okay. And then it was like leg five, we just ran in at the end. Leg one, we were behind and we just kind of hit our paces. So like leg two was just absolute chaos. So yeah, he was absolutely in my head. And I just, I think it's also important to acknowledge that I focused on this much more than he did. Like he won Marathon of Mont Blanc the previous weekend. And then he came out on Tuesday and he scouted half the course. He had a really, really good pacing team that he picked up and he did it. So I, I, I certainly brought a level of, you know, because the time was faster, I had to focus on it a little bit more than he did. So no, uh, 100%, I was, I was thinking about him. And the craziest thing is once I got 10, 15 minutes ahead of him, I was like, okay, you know, this is over. Like, I don't even need to worry about it. But uh, at the same time, like I only realized it afterwards, like for the people watching the tracking, like him and I were always like, he was always like right behind me on the tracking. And I could have turned around at any point during the day, except for like leg five. And I could have seen him like right behind me, which would have been absolutely mm. terrifying if it was a race. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Kind of along that vein. I mean, you said you've been, you've been comparing yourself as an athlete to him for so long. Like, what did it feel like when you actually either knew you were going to beat him or when you actually did complete this round and beat his time? Like, how did that feel? It was honestly very strange, like, and, and still is. I think because Killian is is the best in the world uh, in, in many regards at, at trail running, like I've always, and I, I still do, like, you know, look up to him so much. And I think it's just, it's really hard in my mind to like actually think that I I, I beat him in, in, you know, in any capacity. And it's, I think my because like we didn't approach it the same way like he did have he had different weather than i did he had different pacers than i did different conditions than i did he approached it with you know a different strategy he didn't look at it as much you know some of those are advantages in his direction some of them are advantage in mine like i had it buggier and wetter but it was also a little bit cooler uh so i think within my mind it's always like you know hey this this didn't really count like you have to <laughs> you have to go if you want to like you know try to compare yourself to Killian, then you have to go and race Killian on the same terms. I mean, I think that's just part of FKTs though. Like you're never directly racing the other person. Yeah. You can compare, but the comparisons have to end somewhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm being a little little silly, but it's like, yeah, I always wondered. And then I was like, okay, like someday I'll race Killian and I'll know. And then I race Killian, it's like, okay, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm still where I was before. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, totally. I get that. I get that 100%. So you mentioned, obviously, your pacers several times with the Bob Graham. And so I know that there's a huge, like, fell running community in the UK. And, uh, you know, Bob Graham is obviously very prestigious. Like, just how does, like, an American show up in the UK and go about acquiring pacers for this 
prestigious rally. How does that even work? Well, first you have to go over and spend a month in Scotland, and then you have to race race a route that's completely. Yeah, so um, you know, I didn't go over there with the intention of of racing the Bob entirely. Like it was always way in the back of my mind, but it wasn't. You know, I didn't use the Tranter expressly to get pacers for the Bob, but that's like kind of what it became. Like mm-hmm. as I was doing the Tranter, I was like wow, I have to like do well enough on this that Finley will let me onto his podcast because I know a lot of British fell runners listen to that podcast. Right. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't really love like pre-spraying and like, you know, talking about my objectives too much before I do them, but that was like kind of necessary for this. Like I had to just talk about the Bob as like much as possible. So I was, I was lucky there's a, a local dude, Martin Stone, who coordinated the pacing teams for Killian and for Finley. And Martin was was nice enough to, to take me in, and uh, he introduced me over text to basically all of Killian and Finley's pacing teams. And then we went through basically all of the races in the area, and we just looked at all the people who came in the top 10, essentially. And I DM'd all of them on Instagram, and every time I DM somebody, I'm like, hey, like, who, who else do you think would be appropriate for this? And it got to the point where I had a Google Doc of, like, 50 names in it. And I would send, like, I'd get a new name, and then I'd send them the Google Doc and be like, who do you think I should add to this? And people were like, nobody. Like, you, you got, like, most of the fell runners in the UK on this list. And so I was, like, going to races, and I was talking to people at races, and I was going to, they have, like, a really, really good culture of, of like, running athletic clubs there, like, in every town. So uh, Keswick is where the Bob starts and finishes, so I went to a a Keswick running event, a little like social run, which was a lot of fun. And then I ended up picking a weekday and I always told people I would do a weekend. I always told them it was going to be after September 10th. And I picked a weekday right at the beginning of September. And I messaged my WhatsApp group with 50 people in it. And I think three people were available on that day. And I figured I needed at least 12 pacers. And so it was kind of a scramble, and that was Monday. And so I had four days to get together an entire pacing team. And fortunately, there were some folks that uh, were on that list that took the day off from work or had races that weekend that they didn't go to instead to pace me. And then there was a lot of people just taking pity on me and, like, messaging a bunch of, like, club group chats, like, all over the kind of, like, western, central western UK and uh, we got quite a few, quite a few people, and like a lot of people drove from a far ways away. A lot of people took the day off, and it's just, it was just, it was a little bit stressful because I knew from their perspective, like they just wanted me to go out and have a good day. They just wanted me to try. They didn't really care if I got the record, but I was also like, damn, like they've taken a lot out to help me. Like the least I can do is, you know, try as hard as I can, and and it would be cool to deliver something to them, um, mm-hmm. like you know allowing them to be part of a record-breaking run. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it'd probably be beneficial stress, but that would be so much stress to feel like all these people like rearrange their lives to come help me go out and do this run. But that, I feel like that could also be a, a motivation. Yeah. Yeah, it could go either way. Like, I find I find the supported stuff is so much stress because, mm-hmm. like, you're just, you're relying a lot on other people. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, if, if any one of those people, like I, I ended up on the day of, I probably had 25 people that were out there on the course who met me, who either brought water out to me, who who paced me or, and it's like, if any one of those people gets a speeding ticket or something on the way, mm-hmm. it's like pulled over by a cop or like goes to the wrong location, like all of a sudden, like that person was supposed to meet with water 
on this like at this one section of the route and then we're all counting on it and we get there there's no water there mm-hmm. and so it's like the effort is like a summation of like you know all those all the things that all those individual people contributed and you know when it goes great it's like fantastic and it went fantastically for me but you know that's just a lot of it is stressful kind of like relying on that many people yeah yeah for sure for better or for worse controlling personality like can't stand <laughs> that to be like my success hinges on this person not like getting a speeding ticket or getting lost or you know not showing up where they're supposed to be like that is a level of stress for sure How about 20 of them i met on race day I had, I had never even met them before. <laughs> so. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting things for me, though, especially like talking about things like the Bob Graham and, and some of these other rounds in the UK that, you know, you've mentioned it, I think, in your trip report. And I know John Kelly talked about it. Like most of the people that I've read about, just the extreme value of these pacers, though, in especially like your route finding when you are like off trail and you're crossing a bog and things like that, because most of these people are familiar with the route and they know the line. And I mean, that is like kind of a make or break sort of thing. At least that's what I've gathered reading about it. I mean, did you feel like that was like super integral to your, to your success? Yeah. So I think, I think one factor is like, if you go out and you commit yourself to learning the Bob or the Tranter, there's a chance that even somebody who's run in that area their whole life, like will not know the route as well as you. Like I was talking to Finley after the Tranter and I was describing to him like that off trail section we were talking about. And he was like, he's like, I've only done that when I race the Tranter. He's like, I've never gone out there and like scouted that. There's like, you know, I'm not doing that. Like just because it's so, it's unpleasant. And he like lives in that area. He knows it very well. So yes, there were some, there was one pacer I had, Matt Atkinson. Um, it's probably sick of me talking about it, but um, yeah, like he goes out there and he has an interest in doing this stuff quickly. And he deliberately, experiments with different lines and he learns a ton about it and when he was with us like i just followed him like i didn't navigate at all but there were some other pacers that really knew the lines but other than that like i mean i had sat down and i downloaded you know into gaia i had beth pascal's fkt i had killian's lines i had finley strava i had george foster strava who has now the fourth fastest time on the route and I just overlaid them all in Gaia and I ran like every single one of their variations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's like a level of focus that I think someone can bring who's doing the record that even if you've lived there your entire life, like you're not going to go out and, you know, experiment with like every single way to like run between these two possibly obscure peaks. Yeah. I mean, I think if you have the patience and the time for that methodical approach, I think that can help you a lot. Yeah. And just a, a little bit of a counterfactual, but like anything that was off the bob i had no idea so like there were a couple of times we ran out of water on like three and like i had no idea how to get water and then like one of my pacers would just leave and i'd be like okay we're never seeing that guy again and then he would show up like 20 minutes later with like water filled and as you know he like obviously he knows where the streams are and he knows how to like all the different lines that are all around you know the bob you know that he can kind of cut cut areas off so right yeah obviously like We've talked a lot about what you did in the UK, but I kind of want to switch gears a little bit back to earlier this spring before you did these two huge FKTs in the UK. You ran 100 miles on a stretch of trail I know very well in the White Mountains. (laughs) And I really enjoyed reading your trip report on that. (laughs) Um, And it sounded like, I mean, you've had a failed attempt on this already. And then you basically launched out this spring doing this like, 100 mile FKT on the Appalachian Trail in the White Mountains. 
and it really just sounded like a supper fest. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, I kind of would like to know how that, like what you experienced there, like what you took with you to the UK. I mean, like, so for reference, you know, like the White Mountains for our listeners who don't know, this is 100, about a hundred mile stretch of the AT. And then the train around is about 40 miles and Bob Graham is about 66. So, you know, they're much shorter, but I would say probably maybe equally challenging, maybe as far as elevation and things like that, if you factor it out. So I'm kind of just curious, like, was there anything applicable? What were the similarities, the differences? Like, how did that help you, hinder you? Yeah, so the the gain per mile is definitely greater on the Tranter and on the Bob. So the Bob, 27,000 feet of climbing, the Tranter, 20,000, and then the 100 is only 35,000, you know, mm-hmm. over the course of 100 miles. But the technicality on the 100 miles is just yeah, absolutely insane. And mm-hmm. I think that's what makes that route so hard is the technicality because... It's funny because, like, when I went over and I raced, you know, the Bob and the Tranter, like, I looked at my 100 time in the whites and I was like, oh, that is soft. Like, I'm going to go back the next summer and I'm going to break that. And um, it's just remarkable because, like, when you get past halfway or so on 100, it doesn't matter if you're going uphill or downhill. Like, there's there's no difference as far as the speed. And that route, like, even even the flat sections, like, it almost doesn't matter, like, it, it could be totally flat and have the same technicality. And I don't think it would go all that much faster or slower. So that was what really made that route challenging. And it's it's interesting because I felt like the fatigue I had after the 100 was much different. I felt like it was much more mental. Like it wasn't, it's, it's surprising. I didn't feel like it was as much physical. Like I felt like the physical recovery was, was quicker after the 100 than after the transfer and the bob almost. Uh, I, I, I don't know if that's that's right, but it was because the technicality, I think, just like slowed me down a lot where I couldn't really apply a ton of force to my muscles at the end. Like I had to just walk and like lower myself down like all the really technical bits on the latter half of that of that course. And so I really couldn't pound down anything because I would have tripped and fall and you know, injured myself. So that that route is is remarkably difficult. And I. I went back up to New Hampshire after I came back from the UK and I was just, I was just blown away. Like I ran the wildcat section, which is the first, if you go so well, it's the first 18 miles of the hundred. And um, I was like, what the hell? Like, this is just, this is horrendous. It's just insane. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's so bad. It's so bad. And I, I, I like, yeah. the funny thing is, is there's only two people that understand honestly how bad that route is. And it's like me and Christina Polkick. And like, maybe I'll give Andrew Drummond because he's done 60 miles of it. But like, I didn't understand how awful that route was until I finished it. Like, I only appreciated how hard it was after I finished it. And like, you know, I had raced the Prezi and the Hutchiverse and everything else. And there was another local New Hampshire guy, Jake Casito, who who tried to go for the 100. And I think he thought that like my time was honestly pretty soft because like I look at 26 hours to go maybe a hundred miles. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's pretty slow regardless of how much vert is on it. And uh, it's, it's, it's insane. It's not like, like when I did my Hutchiverse, I thought, okay, the hundred is going to be basically like a yo-yo Hutchiverse, 12 hours per Hutchiverse. And I did the Hutchiverse in 10 hours in 958 with like a, with like an extra mile in it, wrong turn. But it's not like that. Like the fatigue is just, it's just exponential in the latter mm-hmm. half of that hundred. Yeah, I agree with your assessment of the Wildcats. 
<laughs> um, and I've never attempted to run it, but uh, yeah, I've walked through there a few times. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. Like I was reading your write up about it, and I think at the end you summarize it by saying it was like the hardest thing you'd ever done. And then you went and you did, you know, these things in the UK. And then like I'm listening to you talk about them. Do you still abide by that? Is it still the hardest? My, my memory is like so awful. I can't. <laughs> I can't remember. I think as far as physicality, the bog was the hardest thing I ever did. But as far as just a total holistic central nervous system and just like mental destruction, like uh, it, yeah, the hundred was about as bad as I could I could imagine personally. It's about as I've done. That's always interesting how our our perspective and our memories shift with every new thing that we do. Yeah, yeah. My tendency is always to call it like the last thing I did, the hardest thing I've ever done. The hardest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's always the hardest thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I have the tendency to just tell myself that I've always done something harder when I'm doing something very hard. I'm like, well, you've done something harder than this. And then I get done. I'm like, nope, that was actually the hardest. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. new, a new level of hardest thing to tell yourself next time. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. So, I mean, I feel like we could talk for like a long time. I, I guess I have like maybe one more question, a little bit more nebulous than just like about the FTTs themselves. But I mean, you're obviously a super prolific ftt -er, And I just right before we started, I got to read this outside online article about you that just came out. And I would just want to hear or wonder if you could share a little bit about kind of your journey to where you are, like as an athlete, as a human, just how did you get to this point where you're out here racing Killian on the Bob Graham? That's a, that's a really good question. I, it, it's tough for me to say, I think I've always looked for opportunities to kind of push myself i mean in, in in any regard and i think you know for a while that was that was me in the in the military and i kind of thought like i always thought like hey if i was ever in combat that's like you know basically human beings like trying as hard as they can uh basically it's, it's human beings just trying as hard as they can against each other fundamentally i mean obviously there's huge asymmetries in in, in power and ability and capabilities and everything but that's fundamentally how it is it's just people trying to kill each other and I think racing, and I think particularly FKTs, are kind of a constructive way that that can kind of exist. And I think I'm not, not to gender this or something, but I think especially like, like young men don't really have like a lot of, people get drawn to like a lot of like very stupid, you know, masculine behavior, whether that's like, you know, fighting at bars or all sorts of like dumb shit. And I think from an evolutionary perspective, like it does make a lot of sense. And I think mountain sports are kind of like a very, a more constructive way to kind of do that. And I do enjoy racing because it's kind of like, it's you and another person have decided that your goal is to basically do something kind of stupid and meaningless. And the kind of arbiter is the clock and you're gonna bring everything in your power to the table to try to just make that number the clock number as small as possible with like some very basic rules. Like you can't, you know, style, you can't be physically pushed along and you can't dope. So I think it's just, it's just really exciting because it's like, as far as like holistic assessments of like human kind of capability on a certain day, I think it's basically as high as it, as it comes. There's better mental tests. There's better, if you want a pure physical test, I don't know, go do like a 5k or something. If you want a pure mental test, like I'm sure there's some, I don't know, I'm sure there's something you could do, but as far as like something that, really takes into account a lot of your, you know, kind of attributes as a, as a human being and kind of like your ability to, to exert yourself. 
Obviously, there are genetics people bring to the table, and there's all sorts of different elements of privilege that come to the table. But I think to some extent with this stuff, it's a way that those things can kind of be eliminated. It's, it's hard. I think the genetic aspect is big. And I think I am, you know, genetically very lucky. But I think there are things that I would never try. Like, I would, I, I'm not a good flat runner. Like, I would, I would never do that. And I think everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses. And I think with enough exploration, then everybody can kind of find what those are for them. My entire career was running on the track, then I would have stopped running a long time ago. But I think as, as if you don't go out there and kind of, like, experiment what you individually may be good at, then you're never going to find it. I did find what you were saying really interesting because I've always felt like sport in general does fulfill kind of a fundamental sociological and psychological need and somewhat related to warfare. So it was like really interesting to hear your take on that because I've had similar thoughts myself. So thanks for sharing that perspective. Yeah, I wanted to qualify like me gendering a little bit as like, you know, not primarily like a male thing, but I think like men especially like just don't have an outlet for that type of thing. That's why they engage in like such stupid behavior. Thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Thanks again, Jack, for coming on the show. You can check out all of his FKTs on the website, fastestknowntime.com, and follow him at Jack Kenzel on Instagram. Until next time, this is Heather on the FKT Podcast. Thank you.